Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello there. Thank you for downloading. If you're thinking, oh, Matt Chorley sounds youthful and go-getting. No, he's still on leave. It's me, Luke Jones, sitting in for one day more. And today uh, we are going to take you into uh, the political butterfly effect. What could have happened? What great uh, things maybe uh, actually could have happened if there was just one little twist in history? Could we have had Prime Minister Priti Patel? Um, could Ed Miliband have been Prime Minister? Might Gloria de Piero have stayed at Times Radio? So many questions. But we'll get to that after our columnists, Melanie Reid and Emma Wolfe. First of all, uh, we've been talking just about the, the situation on the south coast and any channel mi- uh, migrants coming across the channel. Um, the RNLI have had to put out this video recently defending what they're doing in terms of uh, saving people uh, from boats in the channel. Um Melanie, what do you make of this? Well, you know, I I think what, what says it all is the, the fact that within the last 24 hours, there's been £200,000 donations to the, to the RNLI, up from £7,000 normally in 24 hours, which, which somehow um, it speaks to the decency of, 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 of ordinary British people. Um, and rather, rather reveals that the Nigel Farage attitude to uh, migrants and the uh, saying that the RNLI are doing the wrong thing is is totally wrong. Emma, what, what do you make of this? Because there was some quite a fierce debate after sort of the RNLI got involved and actually had to restate what it is they do. Absolutely. I mean, I agree with Melanie on in terms of sort of the humanity aspect. I think it's shown up the best of people giving so much money. Um, and, you know, Nigel Farage calling the RNLI a taxi service for migrants, I think is, is you know, a really disgusting attitude. F- for me, I just wish that we could show a little bit more humanity about this. You know, this is over 9,000 people this year. OK, that's a lot of people. It's record numbers have arrived by boat in the English Channel. But that's 9,000 people who are human beings. Um, I think we need to stop treating migrants like scum, you know, washing up on our shores and being fished out of our waters, all these comments that people make. I think we need to look, firstly, well, cracking down on, obviously, on the people smugglers, but also look at the root causes and look at helping people when they arrive. No one makes these journeys 
horrible, perilous journeys in dinghies with children and babies. It actually makes me, you know, it makes me, well, it brings tears to my eyes actually saying this. No one makes these journeys and leaves their homes and leaves their their home countries, leaves their families for fun. You know, they're, they're coming because they're, they're leaving behind desperate situations. So I think that, mm. you know, it may not be fashionable, but I think we need to look at helping them settle, get back on their feet when they arrive. We're helping them with language and with employment and with childcare and just treat people like people. And Melanie, it's an interesting return to uh, public debate, isn't it, for the topic of immigration, because it's sort of somewhat slightly fallen off the agenda um, after the EU referendum. Um, do, do you get the sense that people actually genuinely care about this in terms of the, the, the immigration debate as opposed to, you know, how we treat people who are, who are in distress? I think um, I think the government are very embarrassed by this. I think Priti Patel is enormously embarrassed by the figures because... Um, they came in, Brexit was supposed to stop all this, and um, it's, it, it, in fact, one of their main sort of, their main sort of dog whistle things to their... To Melanie, we're going to leave it there. I can't hear you. You're getting very, very quiet. You're sort of drifting off into the background, so we'll try and um, get you up on another line. Emma, what um, do you make I've of... I've got it right here, yeah. Um, oh, very good, um, as you were. Is that any... Is yes, that that's, much, any? that's much better. Carry on, Melanie. Oh, I'm very sorry. Melanie, crack on, we can hear you. No? Okay, Melanie's <laughs> dropped off. Emma, I'll go to you while we sort this out, because it, uh, it seems to be all over the place. Emma, um, in terms of immigration returning back to uh, the forefront of debate, um, do you think people actually care about that core issue, or is it more people just getting agitated about what happens to people actually on the channel? I think people do care, but I don't think that, you know, I think um, Pretty Patel's language um, has been... <sighs> Rather disrespectful and, you know, as I said, inhumane, 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 um, about about people that are in desperate situations. Um, I know that she's thrown throwing good money after bad solutions, you know, and that sending more sending more money over to um, try and get the French the French border patrols on the northern beaches to to crack down on this so that people don't wash up on our shores. But, you know, I, I just don't think we can keep on pushing the problem away and pretending it doesn't exist. I think we need to actually think about it in a slightly more concerted way rather than Pretty Patel just trying to, you know, play dog whistle politics. And also, Melanie, um, is it the case that if we're getting too uh, wrapped up in what's actually happening, the mechanics of what is happening on the channel, we miss the sort of wider question as to why people are fleeing certain parts of the world and, and desperately trying to get to the UK and, and not wanting to stay in France? Absolutely. Uh, as Emma said, it's about people people who have, have nothing in their lives and they are desperate. And, you know, I, I, it, it, I don't know if anybody, um, any, any of our listeners watched the, the BBC Two pro- programme Saving Lives at Sea, which was about the RNLI and its work. Hmm. And uh, it's... It, do you know, the RNLI go out, they risk their lives, and they rescue some extremely stupid people who have done silly things in their yachts. And they, 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 have, they are like the NHS. They are without any discrimination. Just as the NHS will, you know, if you... The NHS will try and save a terrorist's life or a mass murderer's life. Mm. Um, and the RNLI have the same... They do the humanitarian thing because it's what decent societies do. And I think very much 
that um, it, it, it's, you know, it's it's not a, a dinner party debate, a sort of a pitch for a moral maze, a, a conversation starter. Do you do you rescue a, a drowning mass murderer? Do you rescue, um, 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 you know, a migrant who has nothing and no money? Mm. Um, you act on a humanitarian basis. You do not discriminate. You save people's lives. Let's move on to a different topic. Um, James Forsyth in the paper today uh, in a comment piece is talking about uh, the growing waiting list problem with the NHS and his proposition is really that, you know, if anything's going to sink a government, it could be an issue like this. You know, if it gets to the point where um, one in four of us, it could be projected at one point, are on an NHS waiting list of some kind, of course, that is going to get people uh, angry uh, more than anything else. Emma, do you agree? Mm. And this affects people's lives in a much more, as you say, it affects us all in a very sort of personal way, doesn't it? Um, in, a, in the way that, say, uh, the issue of migration doesn't. Um, but yeah, Sajid Javid, there's already 5 million patients um, on waiting lists. And Sajid Javid, the new health secretary, has been warning this could swell to 13 million. So that's one in four of us. Um, I was talking to a neighbour of mine today. She's been waiting for a hysterectomy. Since um, since the start of lockdown, and it's been postponed seven times. Since the start of okay. lockdown, so... Since the start of lockdown. So Gosh. that's not cancer. It's not going to kill her. But you know what? She's actually living in misery. She's living... I won't go into details, but she's living in extreme discomfort, physical discomfort, and, you know, that's... That's the reality. And that is, you know, that isn't happening to everyone. I know other people who have been treated quickly for non, you know, non-threatening um, conditions. But I do think it's going to affect people. I do think that this is the other side of COVID. And this is um, something I've argued a lot is the collateral damage, the other, the other health conditions that are not being picked up um, are really quite serious. And that is going to be further down the line. That is going to, you know, th- those chickens are going to come home to roost because many, many people have not had conditions picked up or treated. It, 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 uh, precisely this, Emma, it's, it's, it's that vicious circle. It's people's health is getting worse while they're sitting waiting. And if you, you know, everybody will have a story like this, ordinary people's point of view. I know a chap who desperately needs a, a knee replacement. And so he can't move at the moment. So he's sitting waiting. He's been told it's going to be a year. He has bad diabetes. He can't exercise. He needs to exercise in order to control his diabetes. And so therefore... And, what's, and his mental health as well. Yeah. So it's it's... You know, we, we, even if we don't actually have someone in our family, we all know someone like this. And that whole kind of, um, it, it's an enormous, um, it's an enormous amount of uh, accountability uh, for which we inevitably hold the government accountable. Uh, and, and the government realizes it. So I think this is what um, um, they now, number 10 now realizes, uh, number 11 realizes, they are going to have to, um, take responsibility for it. But Emma, what, and, what about the point that that this, more than any other thing, could be the thing, to, to, to borrow James Forsyth's words, could, could scupper the stories, as he says? Is this really yeah. the thing that will float to the top of people's concerns? It will. I mean, it is at the top of people's concerns, because as, as Melanie says, we all have a story, we all know someone or have been affected. And also, we know that this is, you know, waiting lists are a political hot potato, and that the NHS is traditionally the Labour Party's strong suit. I think that, you know, given that this is a funding issue as well, and given that allegedly Rishi Sunak has got his eyes on the 
on the on the house next door, it may well be that you know that, that he does realise that m- more money needs to go in to get these waiting lists down. But it, it, it's not even that simple. You don't just get waiting lists down. You need years and years and years of training and you know um, of recruiting staff. So I'm not quite sure how we tackle these massive waiting lists. Um, I mean, even last weekend, there was just a report on the thousands of dementia patients and Alzheimer's cases, do you remember, that Mm. have not been picked up. I think it was 50,000 potential sort of dementia disaster. Many, many daycare centres and sort of residential centres have been closed since the start of um, the pandemic. So there's there's older people, there's people who need who need that kind of help. And, you know, a hip replacement, a knee replacement, a hysterectomy. It isn't cancer. But they're really serious and they're affecting people's daily lives. So, yeah, I do think it's going to be I do think it's going to be at the top of the kind of conservative entry as we head towards the next election. And don't forget, that's only three years away. And these waiting lists are going to be at their peak in the next three years. That's what James is saying in his column. Mm. And but, but Melanie, uh, part of the debate at the moment raging is about the extent to which government gets involved with the NHS in England. Of course, we've got these reforms coming down the slipway, which will give what? ministers power to actually direct the NHS. But in the past, the thinking has been you want to spin the NHS off, NHS off as, as far away from government and make it sort of you know a bit like the Bank of England is now, sort of way more autonomous. I think they're going to take. I think they're going to take it back. I think this leaked white paper shows that they they're going to reduce the role of the private sector and they are going to put money into it. I honestly think the only way the Conservatives will will win the next election is if they do that and they reclaim the, the as Emma says the territory that has been naturally Labour's because because the NHS as 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 James says in his column the NHS is the closest thing to a national religion we have in this country. Um, there is this enormous sense of of, of 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 ownership and pride, and we love it, we hate it, we need it, and and it's it's a great flawed, unwieldy monolith, but um, it's ours, and that sense of ownership, um, of 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 sort of worshiping at this shrine as soon as you've been an A and E and you your life has been saved and you you will never hear any criticism of it again, um, the government needs to claim that if they want to win the next election, I think, because the situation is grave. Elsewhere, the uh, travel farce, as the front page of The Times has it, continues. Um, Dominic Raab was out and about yesterday, said that France was put on Amber List Plus because of a worrying level of a beta variant on uh, La Reunion, of course, uh, 6,000 miles away from uh, from mainland France itself. Grant Shapps was then on our airwaves this morning, slightly uh, (laughs) reverse ferreting on that. Um, Amidst all this confusion, as August looms, I wonder, have either of you actually put your money where your mouth is and and got anything booked, Emma? I'm just back from France. Oh, Um, congratulations. I love that. I love reverse ferreting. I'm just back from France and I can tell you on the ground it was very, very smooth and easy, but I'm, but the preparation for going was absolute farce. It was the chaos that everyone, you know, do we need this? Do we need that? Do we need this document? Do I need this test? I'm not sure about this. And then going through was absolutely smooth. I've got other friends who've gone through on the – I flew – um, I've got other friends who've gone through on the Eurostar who said it was really, really simple. I've got other people who've been sort of on the Euro tunnel who, who've had all the wrong documentation. It's just not clear. Mm. It's just not clear what one needs to go anywhere. <laughs> and, you know, you think that you go to the FCO, you go to the Foreign Commonwealth Office website, you follow the rules. Honestly, and some of the French government websites are so unclear. And also the rules seem to change by the day. It, I just think we need, and this is kind of what... Um, 
your sidekick, Jenny, was saying to Grant Shapps this morning was, we just need clarity. Can we just have some clarity so that people can plan, so that we can do it the way we're supposed to do it? We all understand we need to follow the rules, but it's this sense of not quite being sure you know, what you need and what you have and whether you're going to be allowed in and 48 hours or 72 hours, whatever. Melanie, what about you? My clarity, I'm staying at home. <laughs> yes, you've, you've made your own clarity. I, it's one of the few times when I'm glad I'm, I'm disabled. Disability is a good excuse. I'm staying at home. That was Melanie Reed and Emma Wolfe, our columnist. Up next, what could have been? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And now, a trip into some political what-ifs. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn... I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. A new dawn has broken, has it not? The Majesty of the Queen has asked me to form a new government, and I have accepted. For that, of course, I must take responsibility and therefore I announce that I will be resigning as leader of the Liberal Democrats. But am I tough enough? I'm tough enough? Hell yes, I'm tough enough. Well, I must tell you, my friends, you who have waited faithfully for the punchline of this speech, I have concluded that person cannot be me. I will shortly leave the job that it has been the honour of my life to hold. I do so with no ill will, but with enormous and enduring gratitude 
to have had the opportunity to serve the country I love. Well, what if all of that didn't happen? We are going political counterfactual this morning into Westminster Universe's unexplored. What uh, twists might have happened if, say, Jeremy Corbyn had stood down in 2017? Thank you all very much indeed. If Priti Patel had become Prime Minister. To the British people, we hear you. And to the criminals, we are coming after you. If Gloria De Piero stayed at Times Radio. Good morning and welcome to a brand new world of possibilities as yet unexplored. Uh, this, of course, is all inspired by a new book, Prime Minister Pretty and Other Things That Never Happened, uh, the fifth in a series of political counterfactuals, edited by Duncan Brack and the broadcaster Ian Dale. Duncan is live with us. Morning. Good morning. Good to um, be with you. Good to have you. Um, first of all, what is the attraction of counterfactuals? Well, I think um, counterfactuals all about it's all about things that could have happened differently. There are so many points in history, and obviously we're concentrating on political history, but other mm. people have written about military history, about you know outcomes of battles going differently, of which, but in political history, so so many elections are so closely fought and the results are so close. So many decisions are taken on just a hair's edge. Um, some people die, which who could have lived, some people live who might have died. There are so many points of which things could have happened differently that then go on to affect so many people in so many ways that I think there's a fascination in just sort of teasing through the story of what did actually happen and what could have happened if just something mm. quite small had happened at any particular time. But can't people get a bit lost in, in old arguments? I mean, we've been asking listeners about this morning and there have been so many people saying, oh, what if we'd won the proportional representation referendum? Or so many people saying, you know, what if David Miliband hadn't lost to his brother? And Louisa just texted us to say, what if Rory Stewart had won the leadership instead of the Tories? It's a way for the kind of um, bereaved politically to kind of have their <laughs> way and fantasise in that. I mean, it can be, um, but I think it's also it's. I mean, yeah, and you have you have to place limits on the counterfactuals you're doing. I mean, some yeah. of the some some of the sort of things. Yeah, you know, one of the earlier chapters we had in one of the books is what if Franz Ferdinand had not been assassinated in 1914? <laughs> now that was quite plausible because you know his driver yeah. lost his way in Sarajevo and ended up going down the wrong street and he was shot. Um, but then the first award didn't happen and just you know everything changes and it just becomes too difficult to grasp but i think one of my favorite chapters in this book is what if um eric joyce had not had decided not to have another drink on the night in february 2012 yes of course in reality he ended up getting into a bust up a fight in parliament uh, with tories he was forced to resign his seat uh, there was a big scandal about the union rigging his uh, succession of his successor in uh, Falkirk and Ed Miliband revised the entire Labour leadership uh, system, uh, electoral system. He didn't have to do that. And if he hadn't done it in our book, um, in our chapter, Eric Joyce decides not to have another drink and there's no revision of the electoral system. Yvette Cooper wins the uh, Labour leadership contest in 2015, which I think is quite plausible under the old system, proves a much more effective leader, uh, Labour leader during the Brexit referendum than Jeremy Corbyn did. Mm. That's entirely plausible. Um, and the referendum ends up going the wrong, the uh, different way. And I think that just highlights how contingent uh, political outcomes can be. You know, nothing, none of these things are preordained. They're the outcome of decisions that people took at different times in different circumstances. And sometimes tiny little differences can make uh, a big difference in the outcome. 
tell us about another one. Go go even niche than um, the the fight for Falkirk. Um, what else is explored in the book? So that was my favourite chapter, I think, in this book. My second favourite chapter is what if Randolph Churchill had not died in 1895? Now Randolph was Winston Churchill's father. Hmm. He was quite an effective Tory uh, politician. He was had an immense capacity for self reinvention and self promotion. He started off quite right wing, ended up much more progressive, but he died of um, well, it's suspected at the time it was syphilis in 1895. In fact, looking back on the symptoms, it's more likely to be in the brain tumour. But it cut down, it cut his career short. I mean, he was obviously ill for a couple of years before that. So um, in our counterfactual, he doesn't get the brain tumour. He lives, he becomes prime minister in 1902 instead of uh, Balfour. He's a much more effective Tory prime minister. Now that's no great stretch of the imagination. Balfour was pretty rubbish. Um, and he's more progressive. He introduces old age pensions before the Liberal government actually did in uh, after the election victory in 1906. It doesn't stop the Liberals winning in 1907 in the counterfactual, but Churchill has a, um, a successful career and he ends up in the House of Lords. Now, the, that's sort of so far, but the really interesting thing is what would have happened to Winston Churchill? Um, in reality, Winston was really under the shadow of his father. When his father died in 1895, it liberated him to go and do all sorts of things, military adventures in South Africa and Sudan and Cuba and so on. It liberated him to switch to the Liberal Party in the 1900s over free trade. And then he built a successful ministerial career in the Liberal Party. If Randolph had still lived, none of that probably would have happened. Winston would have been in his shadow. He probably would have stayed in the army, maybe fought in the First World War. Or if Randolph had gone to the Lords, we're talking about hereditary peerage here, and not a, not a life peerage, Winston would have um, inherited his seat and had no career in the Commons. So can you see him becoming Prime Minister in 1940? Not really. And so again, sort of tiny thing yeah. there. Somebody, you know, it wasn't preordained that Randolph was going to get a brain tumour. It could have happened differently. But also what's interesting about that one is that uh, that was obviously a long, long time ago. So it's not as if um, yeah. it could actually happen. One of the examples, well, one that gives the, the title to the book is Prime Minister Priti Patel. I think in a previous uh, book, a, a, a previous sort of go at this exercise, um, you had a sort of a what if Boris Johnson to become prime minister. Obviously, he is now. Um, so how... How difficult is it actually sort of imagining the counterfactuals where actually there is still time for some of these things to happen? Yeah, and I, I think that's a fair point. We've, we've done three um, books with with sort of future counterfactuals. We're like, the, what did Prime Minister Boris? That mm. was published in 2011. Prime Minister Corbyn in 2016 and now Prime Minister Pretty in 2021. Um, it is more difficult to do that because, of course, you don't know what's going to happen. Our Prime yeah. Minister Pretty chapter doesn't have Matt Hancock resigning uh, as health secretary because, you know, we were publishing the book <laughs> at the time when he did. Actually, I think the, the older ones are better because you've got a clearer picture of what actually happened and a clearer picture of what might have happened uh, differently at particular points. But, you know, the, the modern ones, people are more, readers are more familiar with what happened. And we have so many chapters on Brexit in this, uh, this volume because so many things could have happened differently. The referendum was so narrow. If there'd been a different Labour leader, it could have been a different result. Um, so many votes after the referendum was so narrow. Lots of chapters deal with all that. And probably readers will be more familiar with that background. Mm. So I think we appeal to those. Well, Duncan, thank you for taking us through that. Uh, Duncan, come back there uh, one of the uh, uh, editors of this new book prime minister pretty and other things that never happened um let's have a look at some of them uh, in a bit more detail um amanda chetwin carrison is one of the authors yeah. featured in this book she asks uh, what if the covid19 response was led by a woman um morning amanda which woman are you thinking of morning um thanks for having me on so myself and my co-author richard brooks um, basically I wanted to just tackle the question of what if the UK's COVID response hadn't been led by 
a group of white men, predominantly married and of a certain age and economic background, and had in fact been led by a woman. And the most um, the most realistic way of, I guess, answering that question would be, what if Theresa May was still Prime Minister, was still leader of the Conservative Party? And I think we kind of went down the, quite an interesting thought path here of she would probably be far more cautious. The May Premiership was down, would she have locked down earlier? Um, and how would that have changed some of the really quite big decisions obviously this country has been faced with over the last year? The moment you put Theresa May uh, back in charge, you obviously have some quite interesting things that have changed compared to what we actually saw. So even just, for example, the numbers in Parliament, there was no 80-seat uh, majority under Theresa May. It was much closer and she was much more dependent on opposition parties and the parties of the devolved nations to get even the least controversial of topics passed through Parliament. Um, mm. She probably would be far less optimistic, might not have backed schemes similar such as Eat Out to Help Out, and what knock-on effect would that have had, both to the electoral position in the nations, but also the country's overall economic uh, recovery. And this kind of came about because I think our friends and us, we kind of work in and around politics, and we were really conscious of the fact that we were living through a pandemic and so many decisions were being made by um, a not very representative, I think it's fair to say, group of men of the wider country and the diversity of this country. We started posing that question to ourselves and then thought, well, actually, what would that look like if Theresa May was still was still uh, the leader? And also not just uh, necessarily Theresa May, but, but there's an interesting question about um, how a, a female leader generally would have dealt with this. Because there was a there was a, a strain of opinion at some point in the pandemic uh, that suggested that, that that women were leading countries through the pandemic better. If you looked at what was happening in Germany with Angela Merkel, if you what was happening in uh, New Zealand uh, with Jacinda Ardern, um, there was definitely a there was a trend, wasn't there, that people were saying, look, it's the blokes who are screwing this up. Yeah, and um, we absolutely looked at that and kind of brought in very small strands of what was happening abroad as well, particularly if Theresa had been there, what would it have looked like to actually have a group of women in those quite powerful decisions making making those big decisions that affected us all. Um, I do think it's worth saying we don't necessarily say that just because she's a woman, it would automatically have been better. We do just think it might have been different. There might, for example, have been much less focus on uh, the continuation of live sport and perhaps more thought put into how um, only being able to exercise outside, so when gyms were shut, specifically impacts women from a safety perspective. So we did kind of go through all of that quite a lot and look through all of those in the chapter. Um, I do think one of the things that we particularly looked at was the fact that despite the fact that Theresa and Boris are obviously from the same party and have been in it all their lives, they are fundamentally different politically and personally so Theresa is by nature a bit more uh, potentially a bit more happy to lean into the authoritarian way of doing things particularly if you look at borders and immigration and has a slightly more narrow worldview whereas obviously Mr Johnson is far more uh, libertarian and a bit more scathy so we were looking at how actually that might impact it and also how she might be challenged a lot more from inside her party purely because of the fact that she was a woman. Good to talk to you, Amanda. Thank you so much for your time. Amanda chapman Karras in there, um, one of the authors in this uh, new book. We will uh, continue this uh, dip into many sliding doors possibilities of, of politics in a moment, looking at, um, we'll go well into the milliverse and also find out why a single vote back in 1997 might have stopped everyone voting leave well like all the you know, majority of people in the uh, in the referendum back in 2016 this is luke jones on times radio in association with godaddy providing the help and tools you need to grow your business online weekday mornings on times radio with godaddy providing all the help and tools you need to grow your business online
11.20, this is Luke Jones and for Matt Chorley on Times Radio. Um, now, uh, continuing our look at uh, the political butterfly effects, Peter Franklin, Associate Editor at Unheard, is with us. Morning, Peter. This interests you, the idea of these political alternate realities. What have you been looking uh, at? Absolutely, because um, as, as um, Duncan said, so much hangs on tiny events and there's no kind of historical law that says that these tiny events have to happen in a certain way. They're, they're, they really are open, and, and you know, even quite insignificant people, um, powerless people, can make a difference. So explain for me um, the idea of, of, of what might have happened in 97, a single vote, you say, that could have stopped Brexit. 2001, actually. Um, ah, it, it was the, um, it was the uh, Conservative leadership contest, and um, at the outset of it, uh, everyone thought that Michael Portillo would win. Um, various mistakes were made during that campaign. And by the time it came to the, um, the crucial third ballot of Conservative MPs, um, uh, Michael Portillo was knocked out of the contest by just one vote. Um, Ian Duncan Smith just got one vote, a single vote more than Portillo, and had it had just one MP switched, decided to go the other way, then Portillo would have gone through, and that would have changed everything. In what way? Well, it would have meant Portillo almost certainly would have beaten Ken Clark in the um, in the in the ballot of party members because um, the um, the Euro, the more Eurosceptic candidate was always going to win that. Um, and um, that would have meant Portillo as conservative leader. Um, and it would have meant that you wouldn't have had Michael Howard, who accelerated the promotion of David Cameron and George Osborne, putting Cameron in a position to become prime minister in 2010. And then it was, of course, Cameron who took this huge gamble of calling the uh, Brexit referendum. So... No Cameron at that particular time, no referendum, no Brexit. OK. And how, how useful to, to the sort of current understanding of politics is this kind of parlour game, let's call it that? Um, well, I, I'd say that every single general election, every single leadership election is a what-if scenario. We are asking, you know, the, the, the whole electorate to ask what-if questions. What if we elect the Conservatives? What if we elect Labour? What will happen next? What mm. will be, be best for the country? So thinking in terms of what-if is absolutely central to what a democracy is about. And we had an interesting one recently in uh, Dominic Cummings' uh, BBC interview. He talked about uh, the conversation that he was involved with between uh, Boris Johnson and Michael Gove where they decided which of them was going to which of them was going to stand uh, in the in the leadership election? You know, what if Michael Michael Gove had pushed through and, and had actually made it? Yes. Well, well, we don't quite know. You know what happened in 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 twenty fifteen in uh, twenty sixteen when Boris suddenly um, pulled out, which was a big surprise. It was in your opening montage mm. of clips. Um, and as yet, we don't know what the explanation for all of that was. Um, 
So it's very hard to ask a what if about what remains one of the um, one of the enduring mysteries of uh, contemporary British politics. Yes. Um, well, Peter, thank you for taking us through that. That's Peter Franklin, associate editor thank at you. Unheard. Um, now, what about the possibility of this? I'm not a pacifist, so I did support action in Libya. And David Cameron uh, talked about how I supported action against ISIS. But am I tough enough? Tough enough? Hell yes, I'm tough enough. What if Ed Miliband were Prime Minister? Joel Conrad has been living in that world since 2015, uh, courtesy of the Milliverse <laughs> Twitter account. Um, are you well, Joel? Well, are any of us well uh, in this current climate? <laughs> well, in, in your climate in particular. Um, tell us about the Milliverse and why in 2015 you thought, yep, I'm going to stay here. Well, it was 2016 I started the Twitter account. Um, it was just after the Brexit referendum. Uh, one of my younger brothers uh, worked in the European Parliament at the time. And, uh, you know, seeing the results come in and like, you know, the look of horror uh, dawning across his face as he sort of realised that his career was probably over at this point. Um, and, you know, obviously a lot of my friends were big fans of Ed Miliband. I was a big fan of Ed Miliband. I thought he was uh, a great bloke. Uh you know, he had that sort of like weird nerdiness that I kind of associated, uh, I kind of identified with. Uh, and, you know, like a lot of people, we thought he, you know, he didn't get a fair shake in the media. But, you know, that's politics. That's what happens. So when, you know, the Brexit referendum came down and we were all feeling a bit kind of despondent, uh, I spotted a tweet uh, not original to me, alas, uh, a guy called Mark D, who said, in a parallel universe, Ed Miliband is prime minister and everyone is annoyed at how boring it is. <laughs> and I think it was that um, it's that that became the kind of tone for the account, which it was um, contrasting the increasingly um, apocalyptic news we were uh, seeing in the sort of aftermath of Brexit with what, you know, seemed comparatively mild and uh nonsensical mm. criticisms of you know how you eat a sandwich or you know does ed miliband walk a bit funny and uh, you know does he look a bit like wallace from wallace and gromit which don't you forget, know, don't forget the edstone pale. um the edstone of course yeah catches up then joel what actually has been happening uh in the in the parallel ed miliband prime minister universe what how did it how did it go well, it went all right. I think like the the general tone is that it's basically fine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, I didn't want to sort of create this uh, you know utopian you know universe because you know uh, that's not very funny to me. Uh, <laughs> so you know there were things that were um, uh, the big the big stories were of course that you know a suspicious package arrives at number ten turns out to be a box of shortcake shortbread. Uh, uh, there was. Um, you know, there's a cause for his resignation after he gets lost in IKEA, uh, and uh, the uh, the cause for um, something bigger for Scotland, which was to uh, build a second bigger Scotland uh, just off the coast, uh, which you know met with some uh, mixed reviews. Uh, and one of my favourites was uh, I don't even remember the um, uh, I think it was the Times that ran a story about um, uh, the government saying that firms must. Uh, uh, give details on I, th I can't even remember what it was now it was if something about um political views or something and i parodied that with firms must list favorite phil collins songs as a as a, p a policy from uh, uh, the so ed so ed was uh, was clearly in this universe having fun as being prime minister i wonder was he still in office when the pandemic hit and and how did he handle it this was a question that i i sort of struggled with whether or not it was okay to tackle um 
I, I sort of stepped away from it uh, after the kind of anniversary of like when the election would have been in, in 2020. Uh, and I sort of wanted to, you know, it, it didn't feel right to kind of make jokes about mm. the pandemic. Uh, so I think I think I um, I think I, I sort of uh, signed off on it on a note of uh, on the anniversary of, on the day when had there not been a 2017 election and a 2019 election, if we had yeah. gone the full five years to 2020, Ed Miliband uh, was re-elected with a majority of 69, um, just to be nice. Uh, <laughs> And in terms of that, that, in terms of looking back on the exercise as well, I think was it just um, was it just good fun, or is it actually? Do you think there's things things to be learnt through this as well? Actually, I think like one of the things I was most interested in doing was looking at the way that a lot of political stories get reported and get discussed in social media uh, and beyond, and. I think when you take a character like Ed Miliband, who was quite, I mean, comparative to what we have um, now and what we had during uh, the uh, Cameron Corbyn, um, Theresa May, Boris Johnson era, you know, comparatively seems quite mild mannered. And uh, so things often like you have to exaggerate and you have to, you know, make a bigger deal out of things. Mm. Um, and I think like when you look at a universe where you don't have a big catastrophe or well, from my perspective, a catastrophe like Brexit, um, where does the political fire fall then? Like where do people find the things to talk about and to get amped up about? Yeah. Uh, that's not to say that like things like Brexit aren't worth getting amped up about, but um, I think like there is always that political energy. And I think, for me, it was interesting to kind of look at if you don't have a big obvious target, where does that energy go? Where where do people start finding uh, the things to get passionate about, uh, whether in anger or, or in um, uh, desire, I suppose. <laughs> So there we go, what could have happened uh, with Ed Miliband, the Milliverse, and so many more besides. Thank you so much for listening. If you subscribe, you can get this podcast uh, as soon as it is ready for you. Matt will be back on Monday. I'm Luke Jones. Goodbye. <laughs>